Hello, welcome to my podcast. In this episode, I discuss the war in Ukraine with Konstantin Kissin. He is a comedian, co-host of Trigonometry, and author of An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. He also happens to be from Russia. You can find him on both Twitter and Substack. Our discussion centers on the question, arming Ukraine and sanctioning Russia, is this the right approach? Konstantin takes the position that, broadly speaking, it is the right approach. I take the contrary position, arguing that this approach may have serious unintended consequences and that the West ought to try a different strategy. Okay, Constantine, thanks for coming on my podcast. Um, but before we get into the meat of the question, I just wanted to ask you about something that you mentioned you felt strongly about, and that's uh, that the Ukraine crisis should be of concern to us in the West and in Britain in particular. Why do you feel that is? Well, I can go into a long explanation about it, but I feel that if I'm not upsetting the apple cart too much, but I feel like I'm on the on this very rare occasion for me on the mainstream side of the argument. Uh, so would it maybe be better for you to explain your position first and for me to reply? Just because I feel like many of the arguments that I'm going to make, uh, people will be quite familiar with. Uh, because they are being advanced extensively in the mainstream anyway. Uh, whereas if you have a, a different outlook, then perhaps it's better that you kind of out, outline why you don't think the West should get involved. Okay, well, so, um, yeah, my position isn't, isn't quite that the West shouldn't get involved, but I'll play the devil's advocate. And I guess some people would argue that the Ukraine crisis shouldn't be our concern in... in insofar as there are several wars going on around the world at the moment and there have been several wars in recent history that the West didn't concern itself with that had relatively large death tolls in which civilians were killed by one side or other. So why should we care about what's happening in Ukraine? What would you respond to that? Well, you're you're advancing an argument of, from morality, which is admirable, but I think when it comes to geopolitics, not necessarily the way that these decisions are made or ought to be made. The, the reason that uh, the war in Ukraine is not a crisis, it's a war, it's an invasion, uh, is different, is that it affects the rest of the world in a massive way. So you've got to understand that 20% of all wheat that is exported in the world that is sold outside of the country in which is produced is produced either in Russia or in Ukraine. Uh, large quantities of essential metals are produced in Russia or in Ukraine. Fertilizer, Russia, Belarus and Ukraine and on and on we go. So one of the consequences of what's happening in Ukraine is that this will have a huge effect on global food prices. This is also obviously the case with global energy prices as well. Uh, the, so the, on, just on those reasons alone, uh, it's not an issue that we can ignore. Uh, what we should or shouldn't do about it is obviously the next question, but we can talk about that separately. So first and foremost, to compare the war in Ukraine with Yemen or Iraq or Syria or Libya or any of these other conflicts is to fundamentally misunderstand the impact on the, on the world that will uh, come as a result of what's happening due to the fact that we rely on this region for a large number of things that we in the West and elsewhere in the world need. So that's the first thing. Yeah. Uh, the second thing uh, in terms of uh, other wars, etc., they're, they're nowhere near as consequential to the world for other reasons. None of the other conflicts that you could bring up involve 
uh, a nuclear nation. None of them involve a nation which has openly said that it's seeking uh, to uh, de what would be the right word? It's seeking to uh, take the U.S. down a peg. This, uh, the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said this only a few days ago, that the purpose of what they're doing in Ukraine is to, pr is to roll back U.S. influence around the world. Uh, so you, you have a nuclear power, which is putting itself in direct confrontation with the leader of the Western world, the United States. Uh, and on and on we go. I mean, there's a there's hundred other reasons. We could go on why this conflict is different to others, but those are the two very easy ones to identify. Okay, yeah, so I think I largely agree with you that this conflict is our concern. I, I guess I would add uh, that um, it's obviously geographically more proximate to, to us and to other European countries and therefore has a risk of spilling over into uh, sort of allies' territory in the way that some other or most other recent wars haven't done. Um, mm. So I think we're in agreement that that it does matter and we can't just ignore it. But where our disagreement may lie is in the exact approach that we, and by we I mean our governments, should be taking. Mm. Mm. So let's begin with the first half of the sort of two-pronged Western strategy, which I see as arming Ukraine on the one hand and sanctioning Russia on the other, arming mm. Ukraine. Uh, as I understand it, the uh, West, and this is mostly the US, has sort of poured several billions of dollars worth of weapons into the U Ukraine over the last few years, and in particular over the last few months uh, during the conflict itself. Um, this seems to me to carry a number of risks that haven't necessarily been thought through. And I'd just like to get your response to some of the risks that one might identify. So one, one possible risk is that it could just end up prolonging the war and turning uh, Ukraine into another Syria or another Afghanistan. And I think Hillary Clinton may have even said that, that the US's objective should be to turn Ukraine into another Afghanistan. That doesn't seem to be a good outcome for ordinary Ukrainians at all. Uh, is that a risk that we should take seriously? Uh, I think uh, you're correct to say that that risk is not a good one for ordinary Ukrainians. The question, however, is in every situation, what are the alternatives? Uh, and the, I'm afraid the sad situation and the sad reality of the situation is that I don't think there are necessarily any good outcomes for ordinary Ukrainians because their country has been invaded. Um, <laughs> so in that situation, there are only bad outcomes. The question is which one uh, do they want? Which one do they want to pursue? And what are the likely outcomes? Now, if you look at it from the Ukrainian side, the Ukrainians are unanimously at this point behind what their country is doing. They're unanimously behind uh, President Zelensky, whose popularity has never been anywhere near as high as it is now. Uh, he has tremendous support precisely because he's seen as defending the country, which is what the vast, vast majority of Ukrainians want. This is a big contrast with 2014. And you mentioned uh, the United States and other countries uh, putting weapons and money in place for Ukraine. Uh, you've got to remember when this started happening, it started happening in 2014 in response to Russia's original invasion 
of Ukraine. So this notion and this narrative that Russia today has been spinning that that somehow has become laundered into mainstream discourse in the West, that if only the West had not given Ukraine weapons, if only the West hadn't interfered, then everything would be fine. It's complete nonsense. What actually happened uh, was Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014 because they saw that Ukraine was no longer to be a puppet state of Russia, which it had been up until that point. Um, and they invaded in order to prevent that from happening. And the West responded uh, to Ukraine's desire to move in a westward direction by providing more support and help in order to allow Ukraine to defend itself. So Ukraine is defending itself. And the people of Ukraine, the overwhelming majority of them want that. You can see even from something as simple as where the refugees are going from Ukraine, the, the overwhelming majority of people in Ukraine want the country to move in a westward direction. That is my experience with all of my Ukrainian family, who are all Russian speakers, by the way, many of them ethnic Russians. Nonetheless, all of them are, are against what Russia is doing and in favor of the country defending itself, are raising money to help the country defend itself. So as long as Ukrainians want to defend their country, uh, and as long as Russia continues to make it clear that it's what it's doing in Ukraine is an attempt to challenge uh, the global rules-based order and the power of the West in the region and in the, around the world, it is absolutely in the West interest to continue to allow them and, and support them uh, with doing that. I, th I think you're absolutely right to um, mention the opinions of, of Ukrainians themselves. That obviously matters vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis the question of whether arming Ukraine is the right policy at this point. Uh, in a in a in a short article I wrote, I made precisely that point that if if the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians want to fight and want to resist the invasion completely, then that makes the case for arming the country all the stronger. However, what evidence do we actually have that there's such a unanimous unanimity in uh, the Ukrainian population? I don't mean unanimity against the Russian invasion, but in favor of fighting a potentially prolonged war? Uh, I don't know that I can give you an opinion poll that would back this up. Uh, what I can tell you is that Vladimir Zelensky has a 90, at the last time I checked, 93% approval rating. Uh, and the, you've got to understand that prior to the invasion, his approval rating wasn't anything like this. So he, he uh, he, he was not, uh, by the time the invasion happened, a, a massively popular president in Ukraine. Uh, he was someone who many people in the country didn't take seriously, and some of his reforms uh, people were happy about and some they weren't. Uh, so the fact that his popularity rating has risen to almost 100% in only a few weeks as a result of the strength with which he has been uh, defending his country, getting support from abroad, would suggest that that's what's happening. Uh, and the other thing, of course, is uh, rather than looking at Western opinion pieces or opinion polls, I speak to people in Ukraine on the ground. Uh, and even people that I used to know in Ukraine who were, I mean, pro-Russian would be overstating it, but certainly uh, shared some of the of the pro-Russian views and pro-Russian concerns. Uh, none of them are uh, in favor of what's happening now. Uh, and so if they're not in favor of what's happening now, we can only assume that they would be against allowing Russia to take over their country. I mean, what other option is there? What could they be? If they're not in favor of the invasion, what could they be in favor of? A quick surrender? Well, that doesn't make any sense either. If they're against the invasion, why would they be in favor of a surrender? So um, 
I think it's very clear just from Zelensky's popularity rating alone that the vast majority of Ukrainians are in favor. Anytime I speak to anyone in Ukraine, the first thing they always say to me is, we're going to fight. We're going to, uh, you know, we're not like we were in 2014 when we let this happen to us. Uh, we're going to stand and we're going to fight and we need support. And by the way, thank you so much to uh, Boris Johnson and Britain in particular, who they see as leading the way. When you mentioned the, the United States, actually, you know, I don't think the United States has been as quick and as supportive as, as they could have been or as some Ukrainians would have wanted. Uh, Britain has been at the forefront leading the way. At least that's what I hear on the ground. But to answer your question, I think Zelensky's personal approval rating would tell you quite a lot about how Ukrainians feel. Yeah, I would agree that that does constitute at least reasonably strong evidence. Uh, but one of the points that I made in, in my short article was that while fighting now when the war has only been only been going for a couple of months might seem appealing, if the war reaches some kind of stalemate, say in the eastern uh, region where it, it, it's now uh, hottest, that it could drag on for months, maybe even years, at which point ordinary Ukrainians might regret having uh, uh, supported the policy that, that is now being undertaken. I, I disagree what, with that very okay. strongly. I, I think the longer the war runs on, uh, if it runs on in that way, uh, the, the happier Ukrainians will be to have made the stand that they've made. I think the 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 likely scenario in which Ukrainians would regret supporting a strong defense would be if Russia eventually overruns all of Ukraine anyway and, and ends up destroying uh, you know, cities around the country like they did with Mariupol. Uh, but I, uh, if, if what you are suggesting happens, which is this, this becomes a long grind in the East, I think Ukrainians will be very uh, happy to, to have been able to effectively defend their country. Because you've got to remember, as we just talked about, in every situation, you have to not only look at what, the, you, what is happening, but also the, the scenarios that would have been the alternative, right? The alternative would be for Ukraine to surrender. Those are the only two options, uh, because the Vladimir Putin has made it very clear he wants uh, the current leadership of Ukraine to either be removed or to be or to be essentially a puppet. He wants Ukraine to demilitarize. What does that mean? He, that means he wants to Ukraine never again to be able to defend itself. Right? He wants all Western support to be removed from Ukraine, etc., etc., etc. So, and of course. Uh, this means that Ukraine would be forever on a path of ever closer union, to borrow a phrase, with Russia, which most people in Ukraine don't want at all. So even if the conflict in the East drags out, that would be seen in Ukraine as a sign of Ukraine winning the war, because you've got to remember they're the underdog. So if they can take a country which is infinitely bigger, infinitely more powerful and technologically and militarily, and cause them to get bogged down in the east without making much forward progress. That would be seen as a huge win in Ukraine, for which there will be no regret. Uh, of course, people, sadly, people will be killed and, and injured. But in this kind of situation where many people in Ukraine feel that this is a war of the survival of the nation, uh, that would be an outcome that would be welcomed rather than, uh, rather than lamented. Uh, you could be right. And certainly they would have uh, bragging rights if they were able to to prevent the Russians from advancing any further beyond their current positions for, say, months or years. But I worry that um, as the war drags on, 
more and more cities or towns could end up looking like Mariupol uh, and mm. more and more people could end up leaving the country such that its population begins to, serious, uh, begins to seriously dwindle. Yeah, uh, I I don't think that's uh, as serious a concern uh, as you think, uh, for the reason that eastern regions of the country are already being rapidly evacuated. So the area where the Russian advance is about to happen or is already happening as we speak uh, is, is being evacuated. I don't think you're going to see um, similar scenes as you did in Mariupol. Mariupol was an exception because it's if you look at the map of southeastern Ukraine, it's right on the border with the so-called uh, breakaway republics. And so it was able to be encircled in that way because it is in a very vulnerable position as a result of what happened in 2014. Uh, you're not going to see that, I don't think, in, in other cities. And in terms of the population, uh, well, I mean, war is a bad thing, right? I, I think war should be avoided at all costs. Uh, but once you are in a war, the calculus changes very much. Uh, you have seen that the people fleeing Ukraine are almost exclusively women and children. Uh, the men will be staying, staying and fighting. I know many, many people in places like Kiev and other places which are no longer in a direct threat of territorial occupation. They're still being bombarded, but they're not being uh, taken over. There's no risk of them being taken over by Russian, uh, by Russian forces. Uh, many, many people are coming back to those cities. Uh, that I speak to. Uh, so I, I don't think this idea that millions of Ukrainians are going to flee and, and never return is accurate. That I, I think it's quite the opposite of what will happen. Most Ukrainians want to defend their country and want to return to it and rebuild it once that, that becomes possible. So uh, I, I, I'm not as concerned as you are about that. Uh, what I am very concerned about is the idea that Russia could be allowed to take over Ukraine persecute the people that it wants to persecute, uh, enforce essentially what, what Russia has itself now, which is an authoritarian dictatorship. I think that's something most people in Ukraine do not want. Uh, and now that they've seen uh, some of the atrocities that are being committed against them by Russia, I don't think they would be prepared. So I'm afraid the alternative to what you are, to what we've got now is not some kind of peace. What, what would happen if even if Ukraine was forced to surrender at this point is a long-running uh, partisan uh, style resistance that would be just as bloody, if not more bloody and more murderous, and the repressions that would come as a result uh, than, than what you're likely to end up in, in the war situation like the one we have now. Okay, so before getting to a possible alternative strategy, um, mm. I want to bring up a few more concerns that I have about the current approach that the West has mm -hmm. adopted. So... Um, some some Western commentators have talked about actually defeating Russia on the field of battle, i.e. if the West supplies sufficient heavy arms to the Ukrainian military, it's possible they might even be able to push Russia out of not only the regions it's occupied since February of this year, but the ones that separatists backed by Russia have um, held since 2014. Mm -hmm. However, my worry is that if if the goal is to try to defeat Russia... We're seriously uh, risk, uh, raising the risk of nuclear escalation on Russia's part. In a recent interview, the um, political scientist John Mearsheimer, who, whose, whose views on Ukraine you may disagree with, nonetheless as a serious commentator, said that from mm. Putin's perspective, he cannot lose. So, and, he, and he can ensure that he doesn't lose by using nuclear weapons. Mm. 
It's a, it's a, it's an important point, uh, and I think it's not one that's entirely lacking in merit. Uh, I don't see that as being the outcome here. Uh, I think what will likely happen is exactly what I'm about to write a Substack piece about this. Uh, this is probably well. Look, it, it depends because we don't know how the military campaign is going to go. If it goes the way I suspect it will, and the way that you think I think suspect it will, which is it will become a long protracted affair in the east. Uh, then what will happen is uh, Putin will likely do exactly what Stalin did in 1940 with the war in Finland, the so-called Winter War, where the Soviet Union invaded Finland with the clear intention uh, of replacing the government of Finland with a uh, pro-Soviet uh, operator and making Finland the 16th Republic of the Soviet Union. Uh, when the, the Soviet army invaded and my great-grandfather fought in that war, uh, they suffered extremely heavy casualties in a very short period of time, losing, I think, 120,000 men uh, in a war with tiny Finland. It was a complete humiliation. However, uh, despite this, they were still able to uh, capture some territory and the resulting settlement that, that came out of that was Russia, or the Soviet Union rather, got a small piece of Finland called Karelia, and that was sold domestically as a huge win. Uh, you've got to remember that 80% of the Russian public get their information exclusively from state television. Uh, that is to say, all television in Russia is now state television, and that's where they're getting the information from. I've been monitoring uh, the information space in Russia, watching Russian television, etc. Uh, the this is not an exaggeration. This is not trying to call people I disagree with Nazis or anything like that. But the level of propaganda in Russia at this point is Goebbels-like. So they're able to sell anything they want domestically as a win. And so if if the if the war in in the east of Ukraine becomes protracted, uh, then I suspect the sort of settlement that will be agreed is, you know, the the independent republics as they are right now, not the entire territory which they claim, but as they are right now, are recognized in some way. Maybe Zelensky can be flexible on Crimea. I don't know exactly, but it will be some way of essentially legitimizing what happened in 2014. And Putin can then go back to Russia and sell that as a win domestically. I see that as a much more likely um, uh, much more likely scenario than him having to feel like feeling like he has to use a, a nuclear weapon to, to make some kind of advance in Ukraine because he understands that the global cost of that internationally would would be very high. I don't think the, the, the countries that have been turning a blind eye to what he's doing in Ukraine, like China and India, would go along with with him and support him if he'd used a nuclear weapon. I think that would be a line too far for them. I think he realizes that. Uh, so I don't see that happening. But also, again, no, you've got to look at the other other scenarios. Let's say Vladimir Putin takes all of Ukraine or is allowed to take all of Ukraine, which is what would happen if Ukraine is not supported militarily. He has made very clear from the moment that he came into office onwards what his ambitions for Eastern Europe are. And let's just take a moment to look at that. What he said is he wants to denatify Europe, denatify Eastern Europe. That means and he said this as well. He wants to take NATO to its 1997 borders. And that means Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Hungary, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, etc. No longer part Poland, no longer NATO. That means that essentially all of Eastern Europe becomes his, his to do what he wishes with. Now, that's never going to happen. Poland and these other countries are never going to be out of NATO. 
they're never going to be removed from NATO against their will. And that means that if Putin is allowed to move the borders of his country closer to NATO, you're actually increasing the likelihood of nuclear confrontation because you've got NATO facing off directly against someone who wants to denatify half of NATO, right? So I don't think you're preventing nuclear war or making it less likely by forcing Ukraine to surrender. I think on the contrary, you're bringing that risk further up the agenda. So do you see um, Putin as a sort of shrewd calculating actor or sort of a rational, crazy bellicose one? Because it seems that the risk of nuclear escalation is much more likely if one adopts the latter model of Putin. Uh, Yeah, I don't think he is uh, crazy or rational, uh, but I think the authoritarian system uh, uh, and the authoritarian dictator-like system that he operates is has many flaws and one has many benefits of course but has many flaws too and one of the flaws is that it prevents accurate information from getting to the top because people are terrified of reporting the truth up the up the chain Uh, and i think while he is very rational and i think he has been a shrewd operator i think what happened is in 2014 when he bit a chunk of ukraine off and no one did anything really uh he got the sense that the west is weak and divided which it has been and he felt that if he was to do this now while Joe Biden is trying to remember where his ice cream is and what his name is, uh, then he would be able to uh, get away with it. He's obviously miscalculated very badly. And he also miscalculated very badly in terms of how quickly and how easily Ukraine would succumb to his forces. Uh, he clearly massively overestimated the preparedness of his troops, their level of morale, their equipment, etc. And so I think he is a rational operator who is operating in the system that has prevented him from getting clear information. And as a result, he's made a huge strategic mistake for which Russia will be paying for decades. So based on what you've said over the past few minutes, it would seem that the West should supply Ukraine with as much uh, equipment uh, that it needs to bolster its defences in the East, but not necessarily intervene to the point where Russia is completely humiliated. Is that right? Or am I wrong? Well, I'm afraid this isn't something that you really get to control particularly, right? Once you've given Ukraine the weapons, you don't get to control what what, what happens after that. Um, So is... Am I calling for Ukrainians to be giving the the, the weapons and the support so they they can march on Moscow? Of course not. Uh, This is a defensive operation. Ukraine should be given what it needs to defend their country and to push the Russian aggressor out of their country. Um, As for the humiliation, as I explained before, the war in Finland was a massive humiliation for the Soviet Union, but domestically they were able to sell it as a win. Right. I'm, you know, if you've watched my appearance on Question Time, for example, I've been saying things not dissimilar from what you're saying, which is Putin has to get a way out. This has to end at the negotiating table. But as long as he feels that there's a chance of him advancing on, on Kiev and taking the capital and, and quote unquote denazifying Ukraine or whatever nonsense they've come up with, he will continue to try this. So uh, I'm afraid the only way this war is going to end is if Russia stalls in the east and suffers huge casualties, which it's already doing. Um, And that will have to continue before Putin wakes up and realizes that this will have to end in the negotiation. The reason the negotiations haven't led to anything now is neither side feels like they want to negotiate um, because Putin thinks he has a good chance of winning. 
uh, and Zelensky is not in a position to negotiate anything away because after everything Russia has done and the Ukrainian citizens have seen uh, their fellow Ukrainians butchered, raped, etc., they're, they're not, and the army doing well, they're not going to be prepared to surrender. Right. So moving on then to the second half of the of the two pronged Western strategy, which is mm. sanctioning Russia. Uh, there's a number of concerns I have here as well, which I'd like to get your opinion on. So mm. the first is that, um, according to uh, relatively large empirical literature, sanctions in general don't seem to work. It's my understanding. And this depends case, what you mean by work. What do you mean by work, Noah? achieve their intended objectives which in this what is case their intended objective which in this case would presumably be to uh either force a russian withdrawal from ukraine or encourage a popular uprising that toppled putin well i don't see though either of those as the goal of sanctions i know some people in the west do but a anyone who thinks that sanctions would cause a regime change in russia needs their head checking uh, to me, and I think the conversation that should be had about sanctions is, first and foremost, what is the actual purpose? In my opinion, the actual purpose of sanctions is to degrade Russia's ability to wage aggressive warfare. Uh, and sanctions will have that effect over time. But anyway, sorry I interrupted you. Oh, that's all right. Um, so yeah, so my first concern with sanctions is that they hurt both ordinary Russians who oppose the war. Those, those people might be in a minority, but... Um, I think their interest should still be considered, perhaps not to the same extent as ordinary Ukrainians who are getting bombed, but uh, they shouldn't be given zero weight. And they also hurt the West insofar as uh, it leads to rising food and energy prices, which we can mm. talk about more in a second. Mm -hmm. So um, given that there are harmful consequences on, on third parties, both in the West and in Russia, and, pr and probably also in Ukraine, if they're unlikely to achieve their intended objectives, which you might dispute, we ought to, you know, perhaps reconsider them. Uh, isn't it, is it not possible that a lot of Russian military spending is already locked in, i.e. they've already bought all the tanks and missiles and bullets they're going to use in this war? And even if they're... No, it's, it's not. Well, that's, that's not accurate, no. So uh, many of the, of the... So the, if you actually look at the impact of sanctions on Russia, what is happening is... Uh, several uh, plants w which produce both military and non-military hardware are closing for lack of components. Uh, the sanctions are degrading Russia's ability to continue to produce advanced weaponry because some of it relies on imports. Uh, Russia is not a very technologically advanced country, so it's been rely reliant on um, foreign technology for many of the things that uh, it builds. And some of them, well, many of them can't be replaced with Chinese imports or Indian imports. So the sanctions are over time, not immediately, but over time degrading Russia's ability to wage aggressive warfare. Uh, the sanctions over time also uh, degrade Russia's economy. And as we all know, warfare requires economy, right? If you don't have a big economy, you can't have a big military machine. Um, so. Yes, innocent people will suffer. I'm afraid uh, that's what happens when you wage an aggressive war against another country. If you remember the last few years of World War II, how much consideration was given to the half million German children who were burned alive in the cities which the West bombed, the Allies bombed, in order to degrade Germany's ability to wage war. Uh, this is what happens in war innocent people suffer and the responsibility for those innocent people suffering 
is on the people who start the war, which is one of the conclusions that, if you remember, was agreed at Nuremberg, that the crime of aggressive warfare is a crime from which all other war crimes stem. So the fact that the West is forced into a position where it has to punish Russia, including innocent people in Russia, for what their country is doing, is sad and it's tragic, and I don't wish any ill on those people, but I'm afraid it's a consequence, it's a consequence of what their government is doing. Uh, if, the fact, if their government hadn't invaded Ukraine, hadn't massacred people there, wasn't trying to annex more land from a neighboring country, then this wouldn't be happening. So uh, I'm afraid it's awful collateral damage from a war that Russia started. Uh, but the, in my opinion, the biggest misunderstanding about sanctions is that they are intended to produce regime change. I, I've explained why I don't think that's the case. And I don't think that will happen in Russia anyway. Uh, but what it will do is prevent Russia from being as effective as it might otherwise be in waging war. And I think that's a very laudable goal that sanctions are achieving over time. There's um, a woman who uh, is a professor of economics at Moscow State University. She, she's very good on this. And she talks about the impact the sanctions are already having in Russia. And that is uh, shutdowns of large manufacturing, uh, a lack of certain resources, etc. Now, your point about the West paying the price is absolutely true. But you've got to remember, again, as we've said numerous times already, what are the consequences of taking a different route? Well, if you allow Russia to run riot in Eastern Europe, the price you might end up paying for that could be considerably higher than some higher food prices and some energy prices. So presumably if the goal is to hamper Russia's ability to wage war now and in the near future, the only sanctions that are really important are the ones on the specific components that it needs to build its machines of war, rather than the ones that, say, for example, hurt government revenues and thereby diminish the government's ability to fund programs that help the, the innocent Russians that we just talked about. Well, no. The purpose of sanctions is, of course, primarily to limit Russia's ability to produce advanced weaponry. But the other point that I made, if you remember, is that in order to fight war, you need an economy. And degrading Russia's economy at this stage is a way of degrading Russia's ability to wage war. The less money Russia has, the less it will be able to spend on fighting in Ukraine. Uh, and so I'm afraid the collateral damage inflicted on Russian people by one person whose name is Vladimir Putin will be significant and is necessary in the same way that, yes, it was awful that the Allies had to bomb Dresden and many other cities um, in order to win World War II. But it is not the fault of the Allies that they were forced to do that. So would you go as far as to support a embargo on Russian energy into Europe? I do think Germany and other European countries that import a large amount of Russian natural gas ought to stop doing mm -hmm. so as soon as possible. Well, as soon as possible, yes. And I've been talking about it since long before the war. There's an interview that we put out uh, on our, our channel, Trigonometry, from before the war with Malin Baker when we talk about climate change, where I make this point. There's an interview we did with Nigel Farage in which we're arguing about Russia and Ukraine. Uh, but one of the points that I make is Germany making itself so dependent on Russian gas for purely ideological and also for corruption reasons. Uh, this is a huge mistake. So I would have advocated for uh, the West disentangling itself from Russia long before this war. And I have been, and I certainly think now that would be the same thing to do. Of course I do. I guess if Germany had started the process of disentangling itself from Russia several years ago, it would now be in a much stronger position to impose an embargo. 
but mm-hmm. some people claim that if it if it imposed one now there would be a major recession in Europe perhaps even an uh, extremely large recession that you know caused widespread unemployment across the continent yeah, well, which is why I'm not calling for that I'm not saying we should just stop heating our houses uh, right here right now um, what Germany should never have done is given up its nuclear program uh, peaceful nuclear energy that is uh, which uh, they shut down for purely ide- ideological reasons that part of the pursuit blind pursuit of the green agenda and remember i'm not saying that you know environmentalism is bad i actually think pollution and resource depletion and, and all of these things are very important to address and climate change perhaps also i'm i'm less uh, of an I, I know less about that and, and i'm perhaps somewhat less convinced that that is as urgent a priority as, as some others that we have at the moment but nonetheless my point is broadly that uh, I don't think we should impose an immediate, we should force Western Europe to import, impose an immediate embargo on all Russian energy. But as they've already said, many Western countries are looking to uh, disentangle themselves as quickly as possible. Now, I've been saying for years that should have been done before. Now that people are listening, hopefully we can do it quickly enough that it has an impact uh, and prevents Russia from using that against us. So one um, concern I have with uh reducing russian energy imports is that the energy would presumably have to be sourced from elsewhere and if you're talking about mm-hmm. oil that also almost certainly means saudi arabia at least in part which is i believe the second biggest supplier of oil to europe at the moment and saudi arabia is currently engaged in its own you know foreign war in yemen which mm-hmm. looks to be at least from a moral standpoint just as uh, well, similarly outrageous as what Russia is doing in Ukraine. So mm-hmm. how can one justify buying from Saudi Arabia? Well, we talked about it in the first sentence of this podcast, Noah. I am not talking about this from a morality standpoint, because I think when you're talking about geopolitics, uh, morality is an important consideration, but it, it, it doesn't make the top five uh, almost certainly. So uh, the reason, so that's the first part, right? The second part is uh, I don't know how much of the solution lies in relying on regimes like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, although that will obviously be a factor. Uh, I think that quite a lot of the solutions uh, are available if we are prepared to, uh, I don't know what the right term is, but if we're prepared to look differently at our own energy. Uh, situation if we realize that yes fracking has negative trade-offs but it also has very positive trade-offs and one of them is we don't rely on uh, aggressive foreign nations for our energy so uh, for germany again the the point i'm making is not that germany should make itself reliant on venezuela and saudi arabia but the point i made was it should never have shut down its nuclear industry uh, so there are answers to this problem that don't necessarily involve a permanent reliance on one evil regime or another. There are answers to this problem that rely on having a sensible energy policy <clears throat> that, yes, takes into account the, the environmental concerns that we all have, but also takes into account the other important things that we've got going on in the world. And I'm afraid partly the reason we are where we are with Ukraine is that we 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 allowed ourselves to be deluded into this 12 years to save the planet nonsense. And so we've made ourselves <clears throat> reliant on these foreign regimes instead of developing our own energy uh, and making sure that we are secure in our energy supplies. Okay, so one final point I wanted to make regarding uh, sanctions policy is 
uh, in relation to the almost unprecedented decision that Western central banks have taken to freeze the Russian central bank's assets. Could this not have the effect of disincentivizing uh, non-Western countries from investing in the West now that they have reason to believe their assets might be frozen or seized if the West takes a disliking to their government's policies? Well, again, so first of all, I'm not an expert in this in this part of the sort of financial system and economics. But it, again, I think we ought to, if we define things accurately, we then get the answers that we need. It's not that the West has taken a disliking to Russian government policy. I'll remind you that uh, the Russian government has been killing British citizens on our own land with poison and murdering people, whether deliberately and by accident in this country. Uh, the, the Russian government has had extensive spying operations which have been exposed both in the United States and in Britain, with these spies being sent back to Russia and awarded medals. Uh, the Russian government has had a number of policies that the West is deeply hostile to, including its interventions in the Middle East. And none of those things, none of them, Noah, resulted in any sort of uh, freezing of any sort of assets of the Russian central bank or even the oligarchs or even Vladimir Putin or even people who were directly involved in some of the things we are so uh, uh, so unhappy about. So this isn't about the the Russians poor Russian central bank's assets got seized because the Russians decided to increase their retirement age or whatever. It's not about the policies of the Russian government. This is about aggressive war in the heart of Europe, including mass rape, mass murder of civilians, etc., etc., etc. And in that situation, as a very different thing uh, to to uh, whatever else is happening. So yes, if there are countries in the world that want to be wage, to be able to wage aggressive war against their neighbours annex land and butcher civilians, then I hope that they know that the consequences of that are coming. Now, if that means that they, they end up taking some kind of different path, well, I'm afraid this isn't a choice that we in the West have. It's not like we have the choice between living happily ever after or imposing evil sanctions on these poor innocent regimes. No, if people, if, if Vladimir Putin essentially wants to start Cold War too, which he explicitly said that's what he's doing, then it's our job to win Cold War too. It's not our job to pretend that it's not happening. So it seemed to some extent that you were taking a, a moral standpoint there insofar as you mentioned, understandably, the um, some, the, some of the atrocities that have occurred during the mm. war. But if we're thinking, you said that geopolitics has to be a, you know, a shrewd, calculated affair. And if we're thinking sure. in those terms, we have to consider the possibility that you know, seizing assets is going to reduce investment in the West, no? Uh, yeah, yeah. But but my, my argument to you, again, I remind you, it's not based solely on the atrocities that are being committed in Ukraine. When we talked about Vladimir Putin's intention, which intentions, which are clearly and openly stated, about pushing the West out of Europe, Eastern Europe, and to start with, about denatifying Eastern Europe, the, the, the price that we will pay for allowing him to do this will be much higher in the long run. So yes, it, it's going to hurt in the short run to do this, but the consequences of not doing it in the long run are, in my opinion, much more serious. And so the decision to do this now is, yes, partly based on preventing certain types of behavior, but partly based on the fact that this is somebody who cannot be allowed to expand further west into Europe. Um, 
now that I've raised all the points I wanted to raise about the uh, approach the West has taken, mm. uh, I'd like to get your opinion on on a possible alternative strategy and and try to understand why you disagree with it, as I assume you will do. So at this point, now that especially now that Kiev has been successfully defended, it seems why don't why doesn't the West put pressure on uh, Zelensky to try to sit down with Putin and reach a negotiation that looks something like the uh, outcome you outlined earlier in our conversation, something like perhaps recognition for Crimea, um, autonomy or even independence for the uh, so the breakaway regions, the so-called breakaway regions, and uh, perhaps uh, ruling out NATO membership rather than risk mm tens or hundreds of thousands more deaths and you know cities being raised yeah it's a good question i think there are several things that prevent that from happening the first of them is that vladimir putin isn't ready to sit down and have that conversation the second is i don't think there is a person in ukraine who could sell that argument to the ukrainian people as things stand uh the ukrainians will not accept that uh, on the basis of of what's just happened um uh, and uh the third thing is I don't think the West is willing to provide the security guarantees Ukraine would need to accept that kind of deal. Because if you do that kind of deal as Ukraine, you have to have something in place that will protect you from further Russian aggression. Now, short of Western peacekeepers on the eastern borders of, of that newly formed Ukraine, which Putin would never in a million years accept, I don't see how you provide those security guarantees. So the reason the Ukrainians are continuing to fight is they want to fight for a better deal that would make sure that they have long-term security, uh, which they're not going to get as things stand because Vladimir Putin isn't uh, concerned enough about the situation to be prepared to accept something that would allow Ukraine to actually be secure in the long term because, and I come back to the point I've made already, he has no intention of ensuring that Ukraine has long-term security. In, in fact, he has the very opposite intention of over time making Ukraine into a puppet state of Russia again, at best, if not occupying it outright. So you mentioned earlier that you do think that the ultimate outcome will be some kind of settlement, albeit one mm. that's negotiated once the Russian military has suffered substantial casualties, even more substantial that, that it's suffered already. What... Uh, what specific things do you think Ukraine needs in that settlement in order to accept it? I, I think uh, we're getting into an area where it's, it's completely unpredictable and impossible to say because how people feel about a, any sort of deal depends very much on what the situation is on the ground. Uh, so I think that, for example, if the Russian advance hadn't been repelled from the north and the center and the south. Well, it hasn't been quite repelled in the south, but if it hadn't been held in the south and repelled from the north and the northeast, uh, at that point, and let's say Kiev had fallen, of course, there'd be many people in Ukraine, I imagine, who who might be okay with the deal that you and I are talking about. But because Ukraine has been successful in repelling that attack, I don't really see why they would agree to that at this point. So it's it's very hard to predict how that will go because it very much depends on the outcome of the fighting in the east which is starting uh which started overnight last night and and will continue for the foreseeable future so we have to wait and see 
Okay, but what security guarantees does Ukraine need uh, looking ahead to the future in order for this conflict to be resolved to the extent that it can be, you know, in the medium term? I don't know, Noah. Again, that depends very much on what Ukraine looks like at the end of this war. It depends on the shape of the country. It depends which of its regions need protecting or securing or whatever. Uh, I, I think it depends really very, very much on what else happens. You've got to remember that it, this isn't just about Ukraine. You would have seen, I'm sure, um, that Sweden and Finland are talking very aggressively about joining NATO and Russia is threatening them not to. So this is why I keep bringing up the point about Vladimir Putin's intentions. This isn't about Ukraine. This isn't about this myth of Ukrainians being Nazis and all of this other nonsense that they invented on Russia today. What this is, is a big geopolitical play to try and use the West's weakness, a perceived weakness, uh, as an opportunity to push the West out of Russia's backyard as he would see it, Putin would see it. And so... If Sweden and Finland join NATO uh, while this is all happening, and if Ukraine is super successful in defending itself, it could easily happen that NATO ends up saying, you know what, you guys have fought off Russia. The only way to give you security is for us to actually accept you into NATO. It depends very much on what happens. That could also happen, unlikely, but it could happen. Uh, another option would be some kind of peacekeeping force uh, in Ukraine. Uh, that would guarantee their security. Again, there's no way Putin would want to agree with that. So for him to accept that, it would need to be a massive disaster. Um, and beyond that, it, it's, an, it's an unsolvable puzzle because other than having some kind of peacekeeping force in Ukraine, I don't see how the West is able to guarantee Ukraine security. If you remember, uh, in 1994, an agreement was signed under which Ukraine gave away its nuclear weapons. Uh, and Russia and Western countries guaranteed its security in exchange. Now, we've seen what, what that was worth uh, in, in this latest episode. So Ukraine knows now from two episodes, not just one, but two, that the only security it enjoys, it can enjoy, is some kind of physical distance and force between it and Russia. And I don't know that unless Ukraine is defeated very badly in this war, that they would accept anything less. Okay, well, uh, I think that was a that was a productive discussion, and you made some good points that I hadn't thought about before. Uh, in the last ten minutes, why don't we talk about the two recent Substack articles that you wrote uh, about about the Ukraine conflict and the um, wider geopolitical context? So, the um, the first of those was called "Stop Calling Putin Hitler." And what was that about? It was about the fact that it's a, it's a very uh, flattering comparison for Vladimir Putin, uh, and I've got to explain this because in the we, in the last few years, the the name Hitler has been thrown around so much that people have forgotten uh, what it actually means. I, I'm not suggesting that Vladimir Putin is Hitler or is in any way comparable to Hitler in terms of things like being having a very strong racial animus. He's not trying to eliminate people because of their ethnicity. Uh, he's not driven by exterminating certain people to create Lebensraum. Uh, he hasn't got any of those attributes at all. Uh, my point was that Hitler's Germany in 1937, when all of it started its very aggressive moves to expand, was in a far, far stronger position than uh, Russia is today. That Adolf Hitler as an individual was in a far stronger position in Germany uh, than Vladimir Putin is in Russia. Now, of course, P 
Putin does enjoy almost complete control of the the structures of government in Russia. But he's someone who, uh, for reasons that I talked about in the second Substack article, he has a lot of support, but he does not inspire a fanatical uh, obsession and love like Hitler did from ordinary Germans. And of course, the state of Russia's economy and its military is nothing like uh, what Germany had uh, built up uh, by the 30s either. Uh, so we're not talking about in Russia, we're not talking about a country that is capable of taking on the world in some kind of global war, other than the fact that it has a lot of nuclear weapons. But apart from that, its economy is tiny. Its economy is smaller than South Korea's, uh, despite being, you know, X number of factors bigger, uh, etc. So it, it's not a huge or powerful country in terms of its economy. It does have a large military, but we've seen that uh, that's not necessarily um, it's not necessarily a military that's well trained or well armed at this at this stage, um, and of course, as the longer the war goes on, the more we're going to see the weakness uh, the, uh, of the Russian economy and the ability to maintain that war effort will be limited. So, my basic point in terms of calling and uh, not calling Putin Hitler was that we shouldn't be afraid uh, of uh, confronting him directly uh, in this situation. Obviously. Uh, I don't think we should escalate the risk of nuclear war uh, at all if we can help it, but we shouldn't be uh, we shouldn't be overly fearful either. And I, I give a lot of facts and detail as to the differences between uh, Nazi Germany under Hitler and uh, Russia under Putin today. Okay, and the second of your recent Substack articles was entitled "Why Russians Support Putin." Uh, mm. What did you say in that one? Well, that one is all about trying to give people in the West an understanding of why people in Russia uh, do support Putin. There's there's a lot of myths in the West about how actually, you know, most people in Russia don't, etc., etc. It's not true. Uh, the reason people support Putin, and I lay it out in great detail, is uh, the, the overwhelming majority of people in the West have absolutely no idea how traumatic and difficult the 1990s were for people in Russia, going from a relatively poor and unfree society like the Soviet Union to going to a chaotic period in the 90s where there was a serious risk of, and I give these examples in the article of your daughter becoming a prostitute or your son being killed in a war in Chechnya or you going from having a cushy, stable job to having to sell your belongings in the street because society around you has changed and you've done nothing wrong, but suddenly you, 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 these horrors are visited upon you. And Vladimir Putin is widely perceived in Russia, not inaccurately, by the way, as having put an end to that. Uh, and the thing that what people in the West call democracy, the, the word democracy uh, is a pejorative in Russia because it refers to the only time that we've had anything like a democracy, which was the 1990s. Russia has had no democratic transition of power in its entire history. And the 1990s was the only time democracy was ever attempted in Russia. And what it resulted in is mass poverty, mass unemployment, mass suicide, a huge spike in uh, drug and alcohol overdose deaths, uh, a huge spike in abortions, a huge spike in instability, a, and a great societal turmoil, a huge rise in violent crime, etc., etc., etc. And so the reason that Russians support Putin is that they've lived through a period to which they never want to return, and they perceive him as being the bulwark against that. So what exactly did Putin do during the nine or the end of the 90s and the early 2000s 
to uh, bring stability to Russia? Well, the first thing that he's perceived as having done and probably did do is to have ended the war in Chechnya and to have put an end over time, but put an end to the threat of terrorism from uh, the, the South Caucasus region, from Russia's uh, territories in the Caucasus, Chechnya, Dagestan, etc. Uh, so he ended the war, uh, which meant that Russian boys were no longer going off to fight and die there. Uh, he stabilized the region by appointing um, essentially agreeing a deal under which Ramzan Kadyrov is the de, de facto owner of that territory. And Chechnya, I think, I, I don't quote me on this because I'll probably get the figure wrong, but I think uh, it gets somewhere between 70 and 80% of its revenue from the federal center, as in its economy only produces 20% of the money that is spent in Chechnya. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So the central government is basically paying Ramzan Kadyrov billions of dollars every year to keep that part of the country stable. Mm. So Putin stabilized that. He uh, happened to oversee a period of time during which oil prices rose massively. And that meant that Russia was able to uh, improve its economy by using the proceeds of the sales of oil and gas and, and timber and so on uh, in order to stabilize the economy. He um, he took wide-scale crime and corruption, which was happening in Russia at the time, the end result of which was the rise of numerous billionaire oligarchs who were people who didn't create or achieve anything for the country other than stealing the state's property. So when we think about oligarch, tech oligarchs in the West, these are people who've built a company that has changed the world, right? The oligarchs in Russia didn't do anything of the kind. They just took something that belonged to all of us under communism and got it into their own hands. That is their entire contribution, right? So he took that corruption and that criminality and he nationalized it. He made corruption and crime the business of government. And that meant that rather than different gangs fighting for that corruption and criminality and those proceeds, the state took control of it. And that is a method of doing business that is very familiar to Russians and they much prefer to the chaos and murder that they saw in the 90s. And so through all of those things, he stabilized Russia militarily, he stabilized Russia economically, and he brought corruption back into government, which is how it's always been done in Russia in the first place. So he returned Russia to its roots uh, and stabilized it, and he oversaw a period of genuine economic prosperity for, for many Russian people. Okay, well, I think that wraps things up, and I'd, I'd recommend people go and check out those two Substack articles. Before we um, end, is there any uh, upcoming publication or interview that you want to plug here on the podcast? Well, I have a book coming out, as you know, uh, in, it's coming out on July 14th, and it's called An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, in which I talk not so much about Russia and Ukraine, because it was written before that, really, but I talk about what happens uh, when the West... Uh, I don't know what the right framing is, uh, when the West deludes itself into thinking that it has no external threats and that we have time to obsess about uh, internal identity issues or obsessing about things that someone who looked like us did 400 years ago or, or all of this other nonsense that we've seen in the last few years. Uh, and I, I remind people that I think it's worth celebrating and being grateful for all the amazing achievements of Western civilization that we now enjoy benefit from. Okay, cool. Uh, well, thanks again for coming on the podcast and uh, see you later. Thanks for having me.